Hey, welcome uh, to this weekend after Thanksgiving. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving together, and I hope you survived Thanksgiving, right? Hope you didn't eat too much. But uh, that was the doorway or the gateway into Christmas. It's officially Christmas season, right? And so I'm excited about that. I love Christmas. I tell you that every year. Uh, you love Christmas, I hope. And so hopefully as we go into Christmas, you'll go on our website, as was already uh, talked about with Ashley, and check out some of our opportunities. What we have coming up, this coming Saturday is a worship night together with our choir. Four o'clock and six o'clock, two opportunities. Invite you to come, be a part of that, just to get the Christmas season kicked off. Uh, we're gonna have a conversation. We're gonna begin that today, a conversation that's gonna kind of wrap around the Christmas season. And this year, what I wanna do is I'm gonna unwrap this ancient passage. It's a very ancient passage. It was written well before the very first Christmas. And yet, this ancient passage written before the first Christmas has a lot of relevance for us this Christmas. This ancient passage, maybe you've seen on a Hallmark card, I don't know. But it goes like this. It's found in Isaiah 9. So if you have a Bible, kind of turn there, kind of pause this, uh, get something to write some notes with. Uh, but Isaiah 9 is where this passage is found. Here's what it says. Maybe you recognize it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see in the middle of that, this phrase, he will be called. He will be called. He shall be called. Uh, so much goes into a name. And in this passage, we see kind of God laying out the name for the child to be born on that very first Christmas. And there's so many, so many powerful things that go into a name. Some of you might be expecting, I don't know, maybe you're expecting a child, right? We have a lot of people here at our campus that are expecting. And what happens when you're expecting a child? You begin thinking about what you're going to name that child. It's a big deal uh, what you decide on for a name, right? It's a big deal because that's what that person, right, is going to be called, for the rest of their life. It's what's going to identify them for the rest of their life. And can we just be honest for a second? Some parents don't do their kids any favors. <laughs> and maybe you're one. I don't know. You're like, why did they pick that name? What were they doing when they picked that name, right? I mean, some parents do not do their kids any favors. Uh, I was kind of looking at some of this. Like, there's some celebrities where if, if you're their kid, you got to be thinking, you're going to call me what? <laughs> Like, you got to be thinking to yourself, that's the name you pick? Uh, let me give you some examples. Like, John Mellencamp, he has these twin sons, right? They've been in the news a little bit. Uh, Speck Wild Horse is one of them's name. I love it. And Hood, right? That's great. I don't know. What makes you think of that, right? How about this? Frank Zappa's kids. I love this. Moon Unit is one. Dweezil, Diva Thin Muffin. <laughs> I don't know, right? Pendulette, the magician. I, I, I kind of like this one. Moxie Crime Fighter is the name of his kid. I kind of like it. kind of rugged, right? I like that, right? How about this? Bob Geldof, Fifi Tixie Bell. That's <laughs> his name of his girl. And then th this is so cool. Elon Musk, right? Uh, he named his son, and I had to put it up here because that's the, that's the name of his son, right? I, I'm told you pronounce it X-Ash, but that's how you write it, right? And it's like, what? 
but it's not just like celebrities, right? I was reading some other stuff, came across this. One family I read about had 12 kids. That's a lot of kids, right? And they named the 12th kid Twelver. <laughs> like that's really original, right? How about this? Two Kentucky brothers in preschool, uh, and their names are this, Rowdy and Howdy. <laughs> that's kind of cool, right? Get over here, Rowdy. Uh, how about this? The Dollar family, that's literally their last name. They named their daughter Nita. Let that sink in a little bit. Nita Dollar, get it? That's pretty good. How about this one? We'll throw this on the screen for you. Uh, somebody named their daughter Har with the money sign. You get it? Har, you get it? Money. Harmony, right? It's fascinating, right? One New Jersey couple, they attempted to name their child Adolf Hitler. Thankfully, the courts wouldn't allow them to do that, right? It's fascinating. Some parents work hard to choose their name, right? You might be thinking about the name of a kid, or maybe you've got kids that are going to have kids, and they're thinking about the name of their kid. Uh, some people, they go with the cool route, right? I want to find a cool name. Other people want to find a significant name. Somebody uh, maybe that I want to name them after. Uh, there are some people that want to find a name that has a meaning so that their kid can live into that meaning. That's, that's kind of a very biblical way to pick a name, right? In the Bible, names meant something. And so there's some people when they pick names, they're like, I want my kid to live into that description, to live up to that name, so to speak. It got me thinking about this team of people that I work with and some of them. And I began thinking, well, I wonder what their names mean, right? And it's interesting to me uh, when you begin to look it up because you can find some classic meanings of names. And then there's this whole urban dictionary kind of meaning of names. And when I began looking, you recognize some of these people. Uh, our pastor of uh, uh, family ministries here, his name is Greg Foote. Here's what his name means. Greg means vigilant and watchful. Right? Vigilant and watchful. That, like, that's the classic dictionary. When you look it up in the urban dictionary, it means this. That Greg means this, quick moving and happy. And if you know Greg, he's happy and he's kind of quick moving. In fact, if you watch the news here in the Cleveland area... Any news station, uh, you will have seen him and his son. They were the first fans in line to receive their new Cleveland Guardians paraphernalia, right? Yeah, why? Because he's quick moving. Because he's Greg. Uh, how about this one? I, this one's interesting. Uh, you've heard this guy preaching here if you watch any length of time. Uh, Jonathan is his name. Pastor Jonathan. And, and he's our pastor of biblical community and care and his name, classically, and I can see his mom, she's a wonderful lady, giving him this name with this meaning in mind, means gift from God, right? It just sounds so Jonathan, right? When you look up in the Urban Dictionary, here's what it means. It means he's an amazing guy. We think that. Super smart. He's absolutely hot and good looking. <laughs> I never, ever thought of him that way, right? But that's kind of what Jonathan's name is. How about this? Adam, Pastor Adam, you've heard him preach for uh, in the classic, and you would know this because very early on in God's story, Adam means man of the earth. He's just kind of earthy. When you look it up in the Urban Dictionary, it's like this ruggedly handsome man. Tall as a tree, but soft as a marshmallow. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, right? Uh, he's funny, yeah, romantic, and a little bit nerdy, but it says that's why people love him. I'm like, well, I look at him different, right? Uh, how about this? Some of you would recognize this guy, right? His name is Bob, Pastor Bob. Uh, in fact, he's been here a long time. God's used him in some incredible ways. Uh, the classic meaning of Bob's name is brilliant and famous. He would probably love that, right? Brilliant and famous. Uh, you look up in the Urban Dictionary, I kind of fudged on this a little bit, but here's what it means. He's a really short man who thinks he's really good looking. And if you know Bob, some of you have met him, some of you haven't, he tells everybody that he's good looking. But the one that I was fascinated with, 
is a lot of you have seen this guy, right? He preaches a lot, leads worship. His name literally means fire or fiery one. Do you see that, right? He's got lots of energy. And then when you look it up in the Urban Dictionary, it means the same thing. He's a fiery one, one who knows how to start a fire. Cute little guy with lots of energy. <laughs> like, you can't make this stuff up, right? It's awesome, right? Names mean something. And here in Isaiah 9, why do we have all that fun? Because in Isaiah 9, the names of this child are given and they describe, ready, his character and his qualities. They, they, they describe what his calling in life is, the description of the person. And these names tell us who Jesus is. That's what they do. God didn't simply drop this verse in the middle of the Bible so Hallmark could pick it up and use it on a card. Now, there's a historical context to this Isaiah 9 passage. I want you to go here with me, and then I want to kind of pop up and say, okay, what's the implications? But the historical context to this is obviously the guy writing this is Isaiah, and God's people had been polarized. They've been polarized, and they, they split into two kingdoms. Like, you had, you had the nation of Israel, and it split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom, and there was a southern kingdom. Uh, and let me just say this. Neither kingdom was doing a great job following God, paying attention to God, doing what God desired. There were more evil kings than there were godly kings. You can read the story, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, all that. You can read about this polarized nation, but it literally split, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. In fact, Isaiah... 1 through 39, in large part, is a pronouncement of judgment because here's what I want you to know. God's people had lost their way. This passage is written to people who had lost their way. They were ignoring God. In fact, this northern kingdom, it eventually would be taken into captivity by Assyria, 722 B.C. Eventually, over time, after this passage is written, the southern kingdom would be taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. But when we get here to Isaiah 9, here's what's happening. This southern kingdom, so northern kingdom taken into captivity, this southern kingdom, we have a king whose name is Ahaz in the southern kingdom. And he's afraid because the Assyrian army that took the northern kingdom captive is hovering. They're at the doorstep and their presence looms large on the southern kingdom. And the population that he's leading what would describe it is they're confused, they're concerned. There's lots of darkness. There's a dark mood in the nation. They're, they're, they're afraid. They had lost their way. What's the future going to hold? They're looking for hope. And so when you get to Isaiah, do the hard work with me here. In, verse, in chapter 8, verse 19, here's what they're doing. They're looking for hope anywhere. When someone tells you to consult medians and spirits, Spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? They, they stopped asking God. And they started going to mediums and, and, and mediums and spiritists and say, hey, what's going to happen and what should we do? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn, distressed and hungry. Look at this. They'll roam throughout the land. When they're famished, they'll become enraged and look upward and will curse their king and their God. Then they'll look toward the earth and they'll see only distress and darkness, fearful gloom, and be thrust into utter darkness. You get the idea? 
of the mood of the country. You get the idea of the mood of the individuals in the southern kingdom? Like there's distress, disillusionment. This country had been polarized. Half of the country is now in captivity. They're disillusioned with their leaders. There's chaos, there's resentment. And now people are consulting whoever and whatever they can, just looking for a breath of hope. Not a lot new under the sun, is there? The Bible isn't some ancient document for ancient people. It's for us right now. For some of us, this is exactly what would describe our cultural moment right now. For some of you watching this, that is what would describe your life. Like if you're just being honest, and it's better for honest, you've been ignoring God, going through maybe even religious motions, yet somehow those religious motions just leave you hollow, full of empty ritualism. Some of you are disillusioned this Christmas. You're disillusioned with people. Maybe you're disillusioned with leaders, maybe life in general. Some of you are confused, roaming around, just looking. I need a breath of hope, somebody to tell me something that's helpful. Some of us, we read this and we feel the darkness of our own decisions. Some of us feel the distress and disillusionment of our maybe moment culturally. Others of us, <clears throat> we literally are frustrated with God because, right, because maybe this is you, because our life just stinks. It just stinks right now. And for you, Christmas makes it worse. It makes the stink more pronounced. Into this scene is when Isaiah 9 happens and God sends hope some 700 years before the first Christmas. Here's what it says in the beginning of Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Christmas is about a great light coming. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. God loves to help those who've lost their way. Christmas is about light, the light of God showing up in the darkness of confusion and disillusionment of men, helping those who are lost, giving hope to those who are distressed, caring about those who are downcast. And that light has a name. And that's what Isaiah 9, verse 6 is all about. That light is a child that is born. That in the middle of personal disappointment and cultural chaos, God drops hope into the scene. And that hope and that light has a name. That child is born, a son is given, government on his shoulders. We'll talk about that in weeks ahead. And he shall be called, four things he mentions, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What I want to do for the next several weeks leading right up to Christmas is just take a look at each of these names because they are powerful. We won't be able to do them complete justice, but we at least need to look at them, unwrap them. And the first one he says is, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Write that down somewhere. Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor. The question is this, what does that mean? And what are the implications for us as a culture and us individually? He's the wonderful counselor. Sounds sentimental on a Christmas card. But, but the question is, what does it mean for that to be dropped into the middle of our culture, in the middle of my life? What does it mean that Jesus is the wonderful counselor? How does he show up in, in my life, and how does he breathe hope into our culture? 
Four things. So if you're taking notes, write four things. First is this. The only way that I'm going to realize the profoundness of what that name describes is if I begin to capture the wonder of who Jesus is. Let's kind of tease this out. He is the wonderful counselor. The power of this description begins by capturing the wonder of Jesus, to be amazed at the person of Jesus, to be amazed at his life, to be amazed at his person, to be amazed at his resume. Uh, you can do a quick flyover. Let's do this just really quick. We'll throw them on the screen really quick. But through the book of Luke, he has an impressive, amazing, which is the New Testament word, right? He has an amazing resume. Luke chapter 2, he's just a 12-year-old boy, gets left at the temple, and his mom and dad couldn't find him. They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Three days they found him in the temple courts sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was what? Amazed at his understanding his answers. Luke 4, he, he's teaching, and they are amazed at his teaching. Why? Because his words had authority. Verse 36, all the people were amazed. Why? Well, they were amazed at the authority of his words and that he had the power and authority to give orders to impure spirits. Luke 5, there they come and they bring his paralytic and everyone was amazed and gave praise to God when he healed him and they were filled with awe. Luke 8, when he calmed the wind and the sea and his disciples are in the boat, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Luke 9, we don't have all these on the screen. He, they're amazed that he could rebuke the demon that tortured the boy. Luke 18, amazed that he gave sight to the blind. Luke 20, amazed at how he answered his opponents so powerfully. Luke 23, the centurion, Roman centurion, is amazed as he stands at the foot of the cross the life of Jesus, the one who was crucified. Luke 24, they're amazed that the once dead man is now alive. Like, like, like to capture the wonder of the wonderful counselor, now stay with me on this, is to be amazed at the man who claimed to be God, and that's Jesus. But listen to me. There's something way deeper here. It begins by being amazed at the man, Jesus, who claimed to be God. But if I want to go deeper in capturing the wonder of the wonderful counselor, it is to be amazed, you ready? Listen to this, at the God who became a man. Just flip it. You see, that word, wonderful, uh, in, in Hebrew, that's what Isaiah is written, and in Hebrew is the word palah, Right? And it means this, a phenomenon that lies outside of my ability to explain humanly. It's separated from anything that I would normally experience. It's extraordinary. Jesus is the, ready, wonder of a counselor. And the wonder of Jesus is this, that in Jesus we see God becoming a man. Let me show you something in the text. Let me show it to you. This is all. This is interesting to me. I want it to be interesting to you. I want it to pop. Here's what it says in verse 6. You, you may just race right past it. You may just like, well, what, what's the big deal? It says this, for to us a child is born. Now you would know this just from reading this, but, but the word used there is for male child. So basically saying for to us a male child is born. And then it's almost like he repeats it, and the son is given. Like, why does he say a child's born, a son's given? Because hidden in this ancient, this ancient document, that these words that God gave to Isaiah, I want you to see this. You see that 
Jesus was fully human. He was a child born to a woman, but he was a son given by God. He's fully God, fully divine. In Jesus, the wonder of Jesus is this, is that he was fully man, fully God. In fact, earlier in Isaiah, uh, in chapter 7, verse 14, it says, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That means this, God with us, that Jesus is God showing up. Uh, it's interesting uh, to me when you think that's Christmas, right? That God showed up. We're going to talk about this in weeks to come. I was listening to a guy this week and he used this illustration and it made me think about my own life. I got three kids, right? And uh, there's times when, when, when they were, you know, uh, young, when my wife would have a place to be or she'd be off somewhere and so I'd be home with them. And I can remember when we were living in Columbia City, uh, we had an upstairs and a downstairs and the kids maybe are five to 10 years old. And so what I would do is I would get them started playing something downstairs because I had some things I had to do upstairs, which is where uh, my room was. And I had this little place off the side where I would do some study. And inevitably, they're five to 10 years old, I get them started, right? And I say, hey, listen, get along with each other, have fun, uh, this and that. I give them the boundaries. And then I'm upstairs reading or studying or whatever, and I would hear what? <laughs> Chaos and commotion. And, and so what would I, I do what you would do, you know? My wife's gone, I'm upstairs, I'm trying to get some things done. And so I would try to advise them from the top of the steps. Like, hey, try this. Well, he's not sure. Try this. And I would try to advise them on how to get along, right? I'd give them a little advice and maybe help them. Eventually, the chaos got worse. And dad is... So I'd go from advising them to warning them. <laughs> Listen, guys. But eventually, as the chaos got worse, I would go from advising them to warning them to incarnating. <laughs> I would have to come down the steps in order to help them figure it out. Listen, Christmas is about a God who came down the steps. That's Christmas. God came down the steps. Jesus is the wonder of a counselor who came down the stairs and God inserted himself into our situation. Jesus is not simply a, a counselor among other counselors to be consulted, but he is the wonder of a counselor. He is the one of a kind counselor, the beyond my ability to totally comprehend counselor. He's the designer of all that I see counselor. He is the man who claimed to be God, but even more stark is he is God who became a man. That's the incarnation. That is the Christmas story. How do you and I know? Now, now let me take you here. How do you know that you have begun to capture the wonder of who Jesus is? What's that look like? What's that feel like? How does it show up in your life? Write this word down some, somewhere on your notes. It shows up in praise. Uh, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, an uh, old pastor back in uh, another time period, said this, the difference between people who used God as a means to an end so it's easy for us to use God as a means to an end, isn't it? And true followers who see worshiping and enjoying God as the chief end of man is praise. Everybody petitions God, but only those who want him for him love to praise him. 
C.S. Lewis, uh, you've heard that name before, and some of you have read his stuff, Lion, Witch, Wardrobe, all that stuff, very popular on Christmas time, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis struggled with, because he, he kind of was a, a reluctant follower, right? He's like trying to figure this out, and he struggled with a God who would command his people to praise him. That makes sense to me, right? Uh, what, what he would say, and, and we would agree by observation, is that, that the few people that he knew who wanted and asked and, and expected people to praise them, they were people that everybody hated. He's like, is God like that? And then as God captured his heart, he began to have a transformation of his understanding of praise. And it's powerful. And I'm going to read part of this to you. It's from his book, Reflections from the Psalms. And it's powerful. I want to read it to you. Here's what he says. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, C.S. Lewis says, strangely escaped him. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval, giving of honor. I had never noticed, this is key, that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world, he says, rings with praise. Lovers praising their partner. Readers, their favorite poem. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors. He goes on and on. Even some politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praised least. Here's what he said. He said, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value and enjoy, they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that a glorious sunset? Don't you think that was magnificent? C.S. Lewis says the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. This is key. Because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Here's what, you know what praise is? Praise is God's invitation to you to enjoy him. That God inviting us to enjoy him is the wonderful counselor. He is the wonderful counselor. Now, 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 here's something about that wonderful counselor. The God who's inviting you to enjoy him. Can I just ask you this? Do you enjoy God? Or is he, is he just a means to an end? You see, that's a distinction. Because that God who invites you to enjoy him, it shows up in praise, he also offers to help us. Jesus is the wonder of a counselor, and if we're going to live into the profoundness of that description, we'll have to do this. Not just capture the wonder of who he is, but write this down somewhere. We'll have to ask for the help that he offers. We're going to have to ask for the help that he offers. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the wonderful counselor who offers to help us. Look what it says, Hebrews 4. So then we have a great high priest, Jesus, who's entered heaven. Let us hold firmly to what we believe this high priest of ours, Jesus, Son of God. Uh, he understands our weaknesses. 
for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he didn't sin. So we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now, here's the deal. It seems obvious that if you're going to go, if a counselor is going to help you, you need to go to that counselor. <laughs> Just think about it. That's stupid, right? Like if a counselor is going to help you, you're going to have to go to that counselor. And when I read Hebrews chapter 4, and, and I read about the way that our wonderful counselor extends an offer to help us, there's several things that make him different, right? Jesus is always available. I can go to him at any time. And when I go to him, I can go with a confidence and a consistency. That's not true about human counselors, right? You got to set an appointment, maybe two weeks out, and then see if I can fit you in, Right? Jesus is the always available counselor that I can consistently go to, and here's what I can find. Every time I go, I'm going to find mercy and grace ready to help. He is the wonderful counselor. I'm not going to show up. He's going to be in a bad mood. I'm not going to show up, and he's had a bad day. I'm going to show up, and I can go with confidence and consistency. But, but there's something else. I'm, I'm, I'm only going to go to the counselor when I think I really need help. I don't know if you've ever been to a counselor. Uh, I have. I've shared that before. Uh, time in my life was very hard, and uh, very, very hard. And I was in a deep depression. And I was a pastor at the time, and I'm helping everybody else. And I remember a, a friend of mine encouraged me to go to counseling, and I said no. And I drug my feet, and I'm like, I don't need it, and I don't right. I don't need help. I, I, I help others, right? My pride was like, I can figure this out. I'll get out of this. And I drug my feet because I'm like, nobody seems to, you know, I don't know that anybody understands what I'm going through. I'll figure it out. You see, here's the deal. I, I'm only going to go to the counselor when I think I really need help. And when I finally got so desperate, I'm like, I'm going to go. You see, when I read Hebrews 4, here's what it tells me about the counselor I go to. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He understands what I'm going through. And so I can go into his presence and be humbly honest. I can be honest. He doesn't condemn me, stand in judgment over me with my struggle. But he empathizes with me. But he offers to help me. And I find grace and I find mercy. You know, a friend of mine who is uh, who's a recovering alcoholic, he, he's been in recovery for years and he helps lots of other people. He would say the most powerful prayer he ever prayed in his life was in his desperation when everything else had failed. He said, God, please help me. He's the wonderful counselor waiting to help us. But, but, but here's the deal. For me to unwrap the wonder of this counselor, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to go beyond that because I can go to the counselor and I can begin to, I can begin to pour my heart out to him. I, I counsel a lot of people, and I, I find this interesting that I start and I spend a lot of time asking questions, and I'll have people come and uh, they'll share what they're struggling with. They'll share the rawness and realness of what they're going through. And, and uh, there comes a point, you know, 40, 45 minutes in, where I'll look at them after they've just kind of vomited their hurt, right? And, and, and I'll ask them a question. It's an interesting question. I'll ask them a question. And this is the question. I'll say, would you like my opinion? 
in in 28 years, I've had one person stand up and say no, and they left. Right? I don't want you. I'm like, well, okay, but but would you like my opinion? Right? And I think that when I think of Jesus and the wonderful counselor, I got to ask for his help. But I'd write this down. I got to listen to the advice the wonderful counselor gives. Somewhere along the way, he's like, would you like my opinion? Uh, this word counselor, it's, it, here's the deal. It's a picture of a king. And he's giving advice and strategy to his people. And it's from the position of authority. Think about this historically. God's people wanted to choose a king, a man who would lead them. And, and time after time, they became disillusioned, disappointed with their human leader. Because they led them to places that ended up empty. And the word picture here is this, is that at Christmas, God gives a king. Jesus is the king who gives advice, instruction, and strategy in his, in his word. And to acknowledge him as the wonder of a king who provides counsel for your life. That's, that's, the, that's the word picture, that Jesus is that wonder of a king. The one who gives the counsel, he gives it from a position of authority. Now, here's the key. What I do with that counsel is going to be in proportion to the authority that I give the person giving the counsel. It's interesting. Just everything about this, we give a lot of people authority in our life, don't we? Sure we do. We take their advice. We take their counsel. Friends. For some of you, your friends have, like, if they say it, that's what I'm going to do. For some of you, a family, and, and that's what you're going to do. Well, they said it, and they got a lot, their voice has a lot of authority. For some of you, it's celebrities, it's culture. Some of you, it's your favorite news channel, it's politicians, it's leaders, whatever it might be. They have a lot of authority. And sometimes those people who have a lot of authority, they tell us what Jesus would, like they almost say it like, this is what Jesus would think. And there's lots of opinions about what Jesus would think. But that is different than listening to what Jesus actually thinks. Many times I'm, I'm too busy making sure God's listening to me to listen to him. And he simply is sitting there saying, would you like my opinion? <laughs> and many times I'm like, no, nah, I just wanted to share what was on my heart. See, here's, here's the deal. There's a story in Matthew 17. Jesus takes three of his disciples up a mountain and Moses and Elijah appear and Peter's like going on and on about we could do this and we should do this and we should do this and it's a, read it, read the story because God <laughs> interrupts Peter. It's almost like, I hear ya, shh, shh. And here's what God says. The voice says, this is my son, listen to him. I love that. Like, I wonder how many times, like, God wants to interrupt Dan's life and say, Dan, shh. There's Jesus. He's my son. Listen to him. It's interesting, isn't it? You see, my plan to, to, to listen to Jesus has to begin with a plan to hear what Jesus has to say. Has to begin there. Right? I, if, if I don't know what Jesus has to say, what Jesus said... Then, then I'm going to just assume what people are telling me he said is what he said. And I wouldn't do that. But I can't just hear what he says. i got to make a plan to listen to what he says. Let me say it this way to you. A plan to listen to what Jesus says means this. If he is Savior and Lord of my life, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it a plan to put my yes on the table first. 
I'm going to say yes to whatever you say. I'm going to say yes. Let me just, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. I told you earlier, I, I went to counseling. And uh, I'm going to tell you something. My counselor made me mad almost every time I went. Honestly. Like, I'd sit there and listen to him giving me some counsel. And every time he did, it felt like it made me madder and madder and madder. I'm like, you don't know. I don't know. You know, I'm thinking of all this. And I will tell you this, I was frustrated, but I had determined I needed help and that whatever this guy said, no matter how mad it made me, no matter how unnatural it felt, no matter how much, I was going to determine to follow his counsel. And I will tell you something, his counsel made me mad because I had a lot of pain in my life, I had a lot of disillusionment in my life, and I am a pastor today because I went to that man. You see, here's the point, and he's just a counselor. But in here is the wonderful counselor. This book, Front to Back, is about Jesus. And he's like, I got some things. Would you like my opinion? And some of it's going to feel unnatural. Some of it's going to feel like, ah. He says, but if you'll put your yes on the table, I'd love to share with you how you can experience not just eternal life, but a, an abundant life. Because the interesting thing about this wonderful counselor is this, is that he invites us into his, into his presence so he can help us. He actually offers advice to us. But you know what's really interesting about this, and this is where we'll land today, that if I'm gonna understand what it means for him to be the wonderful counselor, I'm gonna, find, if I'm gonna follow the way of Jesus. And if you read the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus, you're going to find that he's a wonderful counselor that doesn't just tell us what to do, but he showed us the way. Uh, 1 John says it this way. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's interesting. And I don't think he's saying there's just a rule to follow. I think he's saying that if I'm going to claim that my life is hidden in Christ, it's going to show up. Jesus didn't just say, forgive your enemies. But from the cross, he actually prayed that God would forgive those who were killing him. Jesus didn't just say, greatness is found when you leverage your life to serve others. He actually was the great one who leveraged his life to sacrificially serve us. Jesus didn't just say, turn the other cheek. He actually turned the other cheek when they spit on him and slapped him. Jesus didn't just say, entrust yourself to God when you're suffering injustice. He actually entrusted himself to God when he himself was being unjustly tried. He didn't just say pray, he prayed. He didn't just say love, but he literally loved to the very end. Jesus didn't just say, take up your cross and follow me, but he actually took up the cross for me. Jesus didn't just say follow the way, but listen, listen, this is key. Jesus became the way. In fact, John 14, he said this. It's not just follow the way, but realize I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Here's the deal. The way Jesus lived eventually led to the way Jesus would die so that he could become the way you and I could live. He's the wonderful counselor, 
the wonder of a counselor. Some of you at this Christmas time love Christmas movies. And you recognize this picture. And if, you, if you've never seen A Wonderful Life, you need to watch it. Classic. Jimmy Stewart's life falls apart. And there's this pivotal moment where he prays, and this is what he says, God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. You see, here's the story of Christmas. The way is Jesus. The way is Jesus. And I'll never understand the wonder of the wonderful counselor until I surrender to the one who's the way. That's why Jesus says, the only way for you to find life is to lose it in me. Some of you, some of you are in an Isaiah moment. It's dark, you're disillusioned, there's chaos, there's confusion. And this Christmas, I want you to know Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's the way. He's the way for you to have not just eternal life, forgiveness from your sin, but abundant life, part of the family of God. Let me ask you this. Some of you who would say that you've said yes to Jesus, can I ask you some questions? Are you capturing the wonder of who Jesus is? Can I just ask you this honestly? Is praise your reflex? Is it your impulse, your instinct? Or is right now in your life God a means to your end? It's only when he becomes, enjoying him, he becomes the chief end that all of a sudden a reflex of praise begins to erupt. Let me ask you this. Some of you are struggling right now. Have you gone to the wonderful counselor and asked him for help? Some of you are like, I'm afraid God would be mad. He wouldn't understand. And here's what the story of Christmas is. We have a God who understands our weakness. He invites us into his presence. Let me ask you this. If Jesus is sitting across from your life today and he says, would you like my opinion? Are you willing to hear it and listen to it? You see, Jesus is the wonderful counselor who came that first Christmas. And that's the power of the story of Christmas. God, I pray this, that those of us that are listening and kind of engaging with this message today would respond. I pray that this would go from being a cute Christmas card to being a life-changing message. That for some of us, today would be the day we begin trusting the one who's the way, Jesus. That we begin listening to the wonderful counselor. That we would begin running to the wonderful counselor God, that we'd be captured by the wonder of Jesus. God, in the middle of this moment we find ourselves, I pray that as that happens, a light would begin to appear that points to Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.